1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe for this Wednesday, the 14th of June in London. Coming up today.
2: Back to the future. UK GDP finally exceeds pre-pandemic levels.
1: Bailey on the back foot. BOE Governor laments slowly cooling inflation.
2: Stop right now. Thank you very much. Fed prepares for a pause, but have rates also peaked? (laughs)
3: racks in Goldman Sachs and the most successful hedge fund ever bets on China. Those are the stories we're looking at in today's papers. I'm James Walcott. Plus, the top
1: job glass ceiling report finds a startling lack of female CEOs in retail. That's all straight
4: ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts.
1: Good morning from London. I'm Stephen Carroll. And
2: I'm Anna Edwards. You're listening to Daybreak Europe. Now, let's get to our top stories. The UK has finally joined other G7 economies in regaining the GDP lost during the pandemic. Output rose by 0.2% in March, leaving the economy 0.3% bigger than pre-pandemic levels. Our UK correspondent Lizzie Burden broke down the numbers for us.
3: It's up from a 0.3% contraction in the previous month, and it's driven by services. They grew 0.3% after a 0.5% fall in March, and they had, of course, been hit hard by the wettest march in England and Wales for over 40 years in that last reading, and the strikes holding back services output too.
2: Lizzie Burden also points out that the latest Bloomberg survey has Britain on course for growth of just 0.2% this year. That would put the country close to the bottom of the pile of G7 economies.
1: The UK jobs market has so few available workers that employers are having to hoard labour. That's the stark assessment of Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey who made the comments after official data showed a surprise rise in wages and drop in unemployment. Here's what he told the Economic Affairs Committee.
4: One of the things that firms pretty much universally say to me and have been saying to me for a while is that they find it so hard to recruit Labour in the current market that they are not going to release Labour. There's, there's Labour hoarding going on.
1: Now, Bailey's comments come on the same day the Bank of England's chief economist Hugh Pill said balance is needed between fighting inflation and damaging the economy. Traders now see a 50% chance the central bank will raise rates to 6% by February.
2: Donald Trump has told supporters he had every right to keep the classified documents found at his Florida estate. The former U.S. president appeared in court in Miami where he pleaded not guilty to 37 charges related to mishandling sensitive files. Speaking to supporters after the court appearance, Trump called the prosecution a sham.
3: Threatening me with 400 years in prison... For possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law.
2: Trump is trying to turn his second indictment in 10 weeks into a fresh opportunity to garner support for a White House comeback. The former president currently leads his nearest Republican primary challenger, Ron DeSantis, by over 30 points.
1: Ireland's enterprise and trade minister has told us that the European Union and United States are moving closer together on tech regulation. This is the European Union is expected to hit Google with a formal antitrust complaint over its advertising tech business as soon as today. Simon Coveney told us on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe that countries need a common approach on tech regulation. You know, there's a really uh, improving relationship between the US and the EU in this space. Uh, you know, we do have a you know a, a, an approach to technology now on both sides of the Atlantic uh, that I think is is moving closer together rather than further apart in terms of some of these regulatory challenges. Ireland's Trade Minister Simon Coveney speaking to us there from Paris, where he's attending the VivaTech startup event.
2: ODI Asset Management is shutting its Swan Fund and gating two other funds after redemption requests surged. The hedge fund made the decision as it moves to contain a crisis triggered by the publication of sexual assault allegations against his founder, Crispin Odi. He denies all the allegations against him. ODI Asset Management says it will redeem those who had invested in its Swan Fund by the 4th of September.
1: Shipmaker AMD has given a preview of an AI accelerator that it believes will rival the offering from market leader NVIDIA. Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet has the story. At a presentation in San Francisco, AMD showcased its upcoming line of artificial intelligence processors aiming to help data centers handle a crush of AI traffic and challenge NVIDIA's dominance in the market. The company's Instinct MI300 series will include an accelerator that can speed processing for generative AI, the technology used by chat GPT and other chatbots. Like much of the chip industry, AMD is racing to Meet booming demand for AI computing. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Daybreak Europe.
2: British retailers need to go further to improve diversity in their leadership. That is according to a new report, co-authored by the British Retail Consortium, which found women are still underrepresented in senior roles. Out of more than 200 businesses surveyed, only 13 were found to have female chairs, while less than 25% have female CEOs or CFOs. Retail is one of the largest employers in the UK, and women make up more than half the workforce in the sector.
1: So those are our top stories on the programme this morning. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read Adrian Woolridge's column this morning um, about living in an age of goody-goody business. Have you ever been accused of being a goody-goody, Anna? Um, <laughs>
2: not, m- not for some decades.
1: It's a, well, re- Reading Anna's face over that, I suggest that perhaps, <laughs> perhaps not. Uh, but look, it's a very interesting uh, argument that he makes is that being bad, quote-unquote, can confer competitive advantage and perhaps uh, businesses can put their money or put their approach into being bad Mm. and not necessarily the following the kind of right. the idea of you know shared value capitalism conscious capitalism compassionate capitalism all these sort of terms that we see bandied about the alternative approach being the uh, perhaps a bit more brash you know the Elon Musk types the the Michael O'Leary's of this world that yes. perhaps they can they can be more provocateur and and do better businesses as a result He makes
2: a distinction doesn't he between running very established long history uh, stable mm. businesses and entrepreneurial culture doesn't he yes. and he Suggests that being bad is is good in the latter sense, but I, what what, was, what does bad mean in this context?
1: Well, it's the idea that companies can can relish their bad boy image mm-hmm. uh, and be able to, although this can also be a bad girl image, it's not a, not gender specific <laughs> either, um, but the idea that people make their business decisions based on the fundamentals of the business and not necessarily comments that they make about inclusiveness, which is interesting about a conversation we're going to have later in the programme yes, actually absolutely. as well, because Ian Anderson uh, is going to join us, who is the founder and uh, executive chairman of, the, of Hate Advisor Cicero, and he's actually someone who's a very good voice to have on this. And we're talking about Pride Month and representation and how actually companies should be behaving at this time of year and how exactly they can use this uh, to their advantage as well. So that's a conversation we'll have coming up for you a little bit later.
2: OK, right now, though, we need to get back to the macro story. Uh, the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey says it's taking a lot longer than expected for inflation to come down after data out yesterday showed continued tightness in the UK's labour market. Um, our, our colleague, senior UK economist Dan Hansen joins us now with analysis. So we had the labour market data yet yesterday Dan which I imagine is still shaking markets a little I'm just looking at guilt yields actually no standout rising guilt yields today but certainly we saw a standout rising guilt yields yesterday the GDP data did it sort of add a little calmness to the UK narrative this morning what was your assessment?
4: I mean I think it came in broadly as expected it was a little bit weaker than we thought it would be but I think it's broadly in line I mean the, the big picture from the GDP data is that it's just holding up much better than anyone had expected even sort of six months ago. And there are sort of lots of reasons for that. One is the labour market, which you've just mentioned. There's energy price, lower energy prices that's helping. The global economy generally is probably doing a little bit better than people have expected. So all those things are adding to this picture of GDP resilience and this is sort of I'm saying resilience here relative to a picture where we're expecting a sort of nineteen nineties recession just six months ago. Instead we're having we're we're dodging recession and we're in a sort of period of broad stagnation. And what that's doing is it's feeding through to the labor market, which is what we saw in the data yesterday, and it's ensuring that inflation is staying stickier than um, than the bank of england would like which is what andrew bailey said yesterday so the, all these all this story is all linked um and i think the gdp data today just sort of confirmed what we what we've been seeing which is this picture of broad resilience and sticky inflation so if we're
1: thinking about where the trajectory for gdp goes from here we shouldn't be Popping champagne corks yet? Although that did actually help in boosting the GDP in April.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Even if it was apparently raining, I've forgotten. It's so hot right now; I can't remember rain. <laughs> My garden doesn't remember rain, and nor do no, I. No, it
4: doesn't. It's was it really hot. But um, look, I think Stephen, you're you're right that what we've what we've had this picture of resilience. But going forward. I think there's this real tension now between what Anna mentioned at the start which is this massive rise in borrowing costs that we've seen off the back of not only April's CPI number but also the labour market data yesterday and this picture coming out from forecasters where there appears to be this narrative of the UK moving away from recession but actually it feels to me that we're moving back towards it and actually not only that it feels like that sort of level of weakness might be what's necessary if the Bank of England is going to have any hope of getting inflation back under control over a reasonable time frame. So, I think, you know, picture of resilience now, moving into the second half of the year, there is a, there is this big risk hanging over the economy.
2: Hmm. So, what is your expectation for how the Bank of England navigates this then, Dan?
4: Well, look, I mean, if you look, at, if, you look at, if you look at the market, pr- market pricing now, you've got a peak of 575 I think it's by December or potentially February of next year. We we've, we've got a peak of five. Now, clearly then the risks to our call are to the upside, and that is definitely the case given what we saw with the labour market data yesterday. I think the bank will be cognizant of the impact of what it's done on the economy. We know mortgage rates, well we've seen mortgage rates go up, but a lot of people haven't felt that yeah, yet. There's a lag. There is a big lag there, and it's gonna hit the economy. Um, and there are some, and it sounds crazy to say it probably given the context, but there are points in the, in, over the course of the remainder of the year where the inflation data will look a little bit better. And that's purely because of energy prices. It's not about an underlying picture, but it's just the narrative around inflation will become a little bit easier because of falling wholesale energy prices will get into the numbers. There'll be base effects as well. So that's, that's why we think September's the time that they might look to pause. That said, if we get continu- this, this data, raft of data continues um, as it has done, where the market is just won't look like an unreasonable
1: place whatsoever. Uh, I salute you for not using sporting metaphors and saying that it's all to play for, but it feels a little <laughs> bit like it might be. Senior UK economist at Bloomberg Economics, Dan Hansen, thanks so much for joining us for your analysis on that.
2: Up next, most successful hedge fund ever bets on China and cracks at Goldman Sachs.
4: The paper review on Bluebird Daybreak Europe. The news you need to know from today's papers.
1: And Bloomberg's James Wilcock joins us now for more on what's in the papers.
3: James, good morning to you. Let's start with the Financial Times. They've got an interview with Citadel's Ken Griffin. Good morning to you too, Stephen. Yes, and it's been a fascinating trend. We've seen Jamie Dimon, Elon Musk, have all made that trip to China recently, part of a trend of American executives making the journey. And now Ken Griffin is there, and the FT have interviewed the uh, sort of head of the fifty-four billion dollar asset manager, and we call them the most successful hedge fund ever. That was because of the sixteen. Billion Billion dollars they made for investors last year after fees. Now. When he says that if China's growth were not to fulfill its promise, that would be a major speed bump to uh, the US. not having a recession, we should take it really seriously. But the flip side is he says that their in-house economic view is that actually they are more optimistic than most people on China. They think China will accelerate beyond their for- the average forecasts because, as he puts it, the Politburo and Chinese sort of political class now have growth clearly on their priority list again.
2: Okay, that's really interesting, isn't it? His interpretation of what we heard from China this week. Now, Goldman has a partner problem. This, according to the Wall Street Journal. What, what's the reporting there? Well, so they've got all the gossip, Anna. Um,
3: they have found out that the former CEO, Lloyd Blankenflein, recently held court and was complaining about the current CEO, David Solomon, who he says was spending too much time away from his day job jetting around in Goldman's private planes and DJing at nightclubs and festivals. I mean, it's like Stephen here, all the, all the private jets and DJing coming on. <laughs> <laughs> um but there is a big big nugget of truth buried inside of this which is solomon is the first ceo who didn't work at the bank when it was a private partnership and the story of how goldman in the 1800s was run majority by the partners went public in the early sort of 2000s and then looking at the ownership of the shares there in 2000 a year after it went public the partners had 62 percent of the shares by the time solomon took over in 2018 the partners owned four percent and he has tried to revolutionize the way the bank runs as him as the cd ceo rather than various sort of fiefdoms and that has led to discontent over things like when he then takes the bank into sort of more of a consumer direction and has had to row back on that partners feel they can't have a conversation with him like before in the way that they would with say blank fine and so all this tension is playing out over things like say does he do all the DJing, does he do these kind of small things but the wall street journal sort of put in this sort of big long read that actually it speaks to a wider decade-long transition that's happened at the bank and the tensions around how it runs in the modern era
1: OK, so that's in The Wall Street Journal. Let's go to The Times next, James. They're tracking a growing uproar
3: over LIBOR. Yes. Now, we covered this a few weeks back. It's all about the former BBC journalist Andy Verity, who is serialising a book in The Times called RIG, which is all about how after the great financial crash, there was a big inquiry into LIBOR, the interbank rates, and there was this argument that banks had, uh, especially individual bankers, had artificially kept it low, which obviously is fraud, uh, and then a lot of bankers went to jail. Now, The reporting alleges that senior figures at the BOE and the UK government put pressure on some of these bankers uh, in places like Barclays uh, to keep the rate low, because the idea being is if the government have intervened and there is less risk, that should then have an impact on LIBOR. And if LIBOR was remaining high, that might suggest the interventions weren't working. Now the latest story in the Times with that all being said is Lord Tyree who ran the inquiry in the Treasury Select Committee at the time has written a joint letter with no one but David Davis the former Brexit Secretary and John McDonnell the ex-Shadow Chancellor who are very different figures politically all saying that they think that there was crucial evidence withheld from Parliament at the time over the alleged involvement and expressing concerns Parliamentarians were misled over the inquiry and so that adds a serious amount of weight to some of Verity's reporting although obviously Nothing is conclusive yet, and so they're arguing that this should be reopened and relooked at again. Which is a, again, a fascinating story that we'll keep you updated on.
0: The countdown has begun. From May fourteenth to sixteenth, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state